Art is too important not to share. Welcome to the Allie and Callie Artcast. Hi, I'm Allie. And I'm Callie, and we're with the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Cultural Alliance. Hello, everyone. Hey, everybody. It's another sunny day in paradise. It is. It's, uh, oh my gosh, there's a lot of construction. There is a lot of construction. Let me just say, I I could barely get here because there's now, they're putting some stuff on Mullen Sewer for like a month. I don't know what's going on, but. I know. It seems like a dumb, dumb time to be doing all the construction, but I get that it's. There's you know, no like good the time. Only, yeah, right. There's, I know, I know, but you got to do it when you got to do it. But right. anyway, anyway, uh, how's everything? Now you just had a visit from your mom. I did a lovely visit. My mom, who will be ninety, mm-hmm. she is a lot. And yes. then we babysat the two-year-old grandson this weekend. So I had a very busy, exhausting weekend. I, I get that. I get that. But it was fun. It was great to have my mom here. Yeah. Yep. And then put her on a plane this morning. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And we, uh, let's see, we're busy getting uh, our house ready to have our in-laws move in with us while uh, we're building them a house. And then Uh our daughter, her house will not be done till the first week in September. And our son. So you and are going to have a yeah. busy our household. Our house is going to be completely full. So there's no room at the inn. <laughs> <laughs> All rooms are occupied. So uh, it's a little busy and crazy. And then, of course, singing in the rain. Right. Rehearsals are full swing. And then we've got the Arts and Culture Riverstone Concert Series on Thursday night. That's right. And tonight is Art Walk. Yes. Crazy Art Walk. Yep. So it's a busy, busy summer, but it is always a busy summer. Better, better to be busy than than not than not, right? I don't know if that's true. I'm <laughs> I kind don't of know. Thinking. Right now, I'm a little, I'm wiped little, out. I, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good. Yes, it's all good. So we're excited so. to have our guest here today. Yes, Marlo Faulkner. Yes, hello. Thank you for being here, Marlo. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. <laughs> we. I, I don't know how long I've known Marlo, but how, I bet you've known her longer than me. I've known Marlo for, for I don't know, maybe... 10 years oh or more or i think like i the first time i was aware of you callie weren't you in the production of south pacific i wasn't in south pacific no, Kate, but Stu was stew Stu yes. was billis i'm sure you saw yes billis yeah and that was a long time ago yes wasn't so, that at lake city playhouse um, no that no, was, was summer theater summer okay. theater yeah when it was I don't know. That was at Schuler. Yeah, it was at NIC. Yeah, I don't know what year. I don't remember the years, but yep. We've all been around for a long (laughs) time. Yes, we've all been around a long, long time. So for those who don't know, Marlo's a writer. Uh, Tell tell us all the things that you were involved in. Right. Oh, dear. Now or lifetime? (laughs) Well, start start kind of at the beginning. You've been in Coeur d'Alene your whole life. Well... I or at least you started here. Actually, I was born at Deaconess Hospital in Spokane, and my mother delivered me. Really? Oh. I was one of those, as many people would agree, bastard children <laughs> of uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And my mother worked for a doctor who delivered a lot of women who were not married and who were pregnant, and the orphanages were full. And at the time in Coeur d'Alene, uh, during the war, 
there was a huge naval training base north of us called Farragut mm-hmm. on on oh, yeah. uh, Buttonhook Bay. Mm-hmm. And many of the people who were posted to Farragut, Navy mm-hmm. personnel, were permanent, which meant that this was considered a hardship because it was out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So they were able to bring spouses if they had them. So there were all these trailing spouses and there was nowhere to put them because there wasn't apartments. There were not, there was nowhere they could go. So people, uh, the, the Navy asked people in Sandpoint and Coeur d'Alene and other towns if they would put up these people. Mm-hmm. And we had... As I remember, at least five Navy couples living in our house at all times. Wow. Wow. And my my mother was working 16-hour shifts at the hospital. My father, at the time, ran the only Marine mail route in the United States. So he, was, he had to go get the mail, sort it, get on the boat, and... Uh, head out and he covered the entire west side of the lake wow. down to uh, Rockford, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so somebody had to take care of me. Mm-hmm. That meant all of those, I was reared by all those people. Wow. Right. Plus there was a, a, a Swedish couple, the Ecklunds, who lived in this little tiny room, which we would now call a closet. <laughs> and Grandma Eklund, uh, specifically, her job was to take care of me, and she had it, uh, one of those World War II hairdos where everything is slicked up to the top of her head with curls, and she would go to the Desert Hotel, which is where we are, mm-hmm. wonderful Art oh, Deco right. hotel, mm-hmm. and in the lobby was a beauty shop, and she let me, I could go with her, and the lady in the beauty shop would let me climb up on this ladder she had so I could watch her make the curls, oh, and there fun. was always a perfectly white one right in the middle. <laughs> it was really special. Mm-hmm. I, I was so pleased when Mark and I were married in 1969. She was well into her 90s, and we flew her up to Palo Alto, and she came to the wedding. Oh, so it was, nice. It was really nice. Oh, cool. So I grew up... Uh, I remember those people taught me to sing and taught me all kinds of things. I'm sure my mother wouldn't have approved of it. <laughs> uh, I must have been in my 40s when I was humming around the house one day, Mersey Dotes and Dozy Dotes and Little Lambsy, <laughs> Lambsy di- yep. you know, I, Little Lambsy yeah. Divey. Uh-huh. I did not know that that meant Mares eat oats and Doze eat oats and Little Lambs eat ivy. Mm-hmm. I mean, for 40 some years, I'd been going around singing these World War II songs that I learned by rote. Right. But they taught me to swim. Uh, there used to be all kinds of commercial docks on the city beach because there weren't roads around all the lakes, so there were what they called water taxis. Mm-hmm. And my mom, who never learned to swim, was the first woman to have a license, a, com- a license to uh, from the Coast Guard to drive a, a commercial boat, and she used to drive those water taxis. In fact. I was quite surprised uh, to go into the museum one day and they had a postcard of my mother driving, piloting a wa- one of the water taxis. Oh, oh my goodness. That was an old picture they found and made it into a, a postcard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I grew up in the Fort Grounds mm-hmm. and we were sort of known as the Fort Grounds gang because we used to do things on Sunday, for instance. There was two-way traffic on Park Drive. 
Mm. And we used to, Bob Shinite was one of the worst of them. <laughs> and uh, we would get somebody like Bob Shinite or Bobby Shinite and, and Butch Dahl or Betty Hamlet, somebody like that. And we'd get kids on both sides of the road and we'd see a car coming with an out-of-state license plate and we would pull an imaginary rope. <laughs> And they would stop, and we'd say, we wanted to stop you and tell you to be careful because there there are animals in the park. We just saw a cougar. <laughs> I mean, and then, then we used to sit on the curb and yell, hey, buddy, your back wheels are going forward, and they'd stop and get out, and we always thought that was hilarious. And then it used to be that all these corporations would come to the city park on weekends, and they would have company picnics. So we would go over and we'd go up and we'd say, I'm Bob's kid. There was always a Bob or, a, or an Ed or, you know, or Mike. And then they'd let us compete in all the games that they had for the kids. And we'd always win because we did it a couple of times a day every, every weekend. Uh -huh. So we always had hot dogs and ice cream cones and God knows what else. I mean, we could do sack races we could run with raw eggs in a spoon in our mouth we could do all that and of course there were trains that went through the park then right mm -hmm. we used to you know everybody went over and put pennies on the on the track, on the track right? yeah but it was a wonderful wonderful way to grow up i remember uh when i was about 12 Don Pishner dared me to climb the ladder at the back of the Memorial Field Grandstand. And I was rewarded with a cigarette. <laughs> I remember Cause Don Because Don Pishner's dad ran the concession there at the corner of the park. And then, of course, there was Playland Pier, and we all knew Earl Summers mm -hmm. because we'd go over, and he knew all of us, and he'd give us tokens so we could ride anything we wanted anytime we wanted it at the pier. And then the the thing that other kids didn't know, underneath the Playland Pier were all these changing rooms so that people who came to the beach could go in these rooms and put on their swimsuits. And in the winter, Earl would take out all the boards for the walkway so nobody could go out there uh -huh. because he didn't want people out, out in those dressing rooms. But... We used to go down, and we knew how to step across those boards. <laughs> and there was this guy in town. I think I can use his name because I'm sure he's long dead. His name was Chauncey Custer. I remember Chauncey. Do you remember yes. Chauncey Custer, a tall, skinny guy? And he used to go down and draw dirty stories on the walls <laughs> of those rooms. And we thought it was so exciting that we knew how to get out there and we could we could <laughs> read those. Anyway, that's, and we, of course, we all went to Sherman School. Mm -hmm. And I uh, had a, a marvelous uh, first grade teacher. Her name was Mary Bain. She was from Chicago. And she taught me to read, May, wow. gave me a lifelong uh, love of reading. And I remember when I was on the board of Summer Theater, uh, Mary Lou Reed and somebody else and I went over to renegotiate our contract with, with uh, Schuler. And I can't remember the president's name at that time. He was sort of a nobody with a white mustache. And we <laughs> I walked know who into. That is. We don't have to name him. He was, yeah. 
uh, he was not a pleasant person. Mm-hmm. And we walked into his office, and his desk was exactly where Mary Bain's desk had been, in the same angle, in the same place. I said, oh, my God, my first grade teacher sat there. He said, how nice for you. Uh, pleasant. <laughs> really, Mr. Charm he yes. was. Uh-huh. But she had us in the first grade doing all these wonderful things. We put together a store, and and people... We had parents come in, you know, to, to buy things so we could learn to, to make change and that sort of thing. And when we, when my graduating class from Coeur d'Alene High School, our 50-year reunion, we had a photograph of our first grade class, mm-hmm. and there were 24 of us. Wow. I mean, there, I'm, we're all still amazingly number around Donna Rungi. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, uh, Susan Schreiber, uh, Dick Hawkinson, uh, Julie Blake. It, it was just really uh, amazing. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, my husband and I are driving to California the first week in August, and we're having lunch with uh, Betty Sue Chambers and her husband. Oh, wow. So, uh, and... You know, we've all sort of stayed together. It's been very interesting first grade friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So, Marlo, you've been pretty instrumental in bringing the arts and culture to this community. And I know that you founded the Arts and Culture Alliance with Steve Gibbs. I did. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the arts in this community and how it's made such a positive impact on the people here? Well, it all started when my grandmother came to live with us. <laughs> and she she was uh, a charming harridan. And she was uh, the ultimate Irish Catholic grandmother. And when she found out I was in public school at Sherman, that was the end of that. <laughs> and I was sent to Catholic school <laughs> at the academy. Mm. And... My solace was that I got to take piano lessons from Sister Adelbert, who was really a lovely woman. And then I realized that I could not play the piano. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. I am. I didn't know this until I was in graduate school. I am literally learning disabled. Oh. And one of my disabilities is lack of coordination between my right and left hand. Mm. Oh. So once I started playing the piano, my grandmother wouldn't let me stop. And my mother was still working, Mm -hmm. and so my grandmother was in charge. And so my answer was I I learned how to lift all the ivory keys off those old pianos (laughs) that we use for practice. And then I learned that you could shave the wires under the piano so that they were never (laughs) in tune. (laughs) And finally, they suggested maybe I not play the piano anymore, (laughs) Uh, which was a great relief to me. (laughs) But it gave me a love of music. And uh, my dad had the the, uh, boats on the lake to see we want and the dance we want. And of course, Mm -hmm. there was always music. I mean, literally, when my dad died, we had stacks of records three feet high in the basement. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody from John Philip Sousa and and uh, Benny Goodman, to, I mean, everything you can imagine. And I grew up with all of that. Mm-hmm. And so when I've, I've just always 
loved the idea of music, even though I couldn't perform it. Uh, although Gilbert Burns was my uh, director when I was in, I started in junior high because all my friends were in the junior high band. If you got to be in the junior high band, you were in room 7-1, which means you didn't have to take gym, which means you didn't have to wear the time bloomers and take a shower. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to be in the band. And so I couldn't play anything, so he made me a snare drum player. <laughs> so I played the snare drums. And... Uh, it's interesting, once you get involved in percussion, you, you, it's just in your body. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, and I started following people like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. And, mm -hmm. and at one point in my life, I, I worked with Louis Belson, and it was such a thrill because these were the, my idols. These mm -hmm. were the great drummers. And so I marched with the band, and then I marched with I played in the the concert orchestra in high school I played bass fiddle I have to brag I was invited to play in the all northwest orchestra and I'm sure it's because they couldn't find enough bass players <laughs> but it was really fun to play the bass so I was I've just always been involved in in music peripherally mm -hmm. and so when when my husband Mark and I moved back to Coeur d'Alene from 33 years of being in California and being teachers down there, uh, we wanted to get involved in, in some things. And the first thing that I got involved in was Coeur d'Alene Summer Theater. Mm -hmm. I was uh, on the board. And uh, it was a very exciting time because we were looking for an expanded place and we were hoping to get a new theater built uh, ironically, where this building is, um, and and that didn't work. It almost worked. It it really almost worked. Jim Elder, and Gordon Longwell, and I had this plan, and it was it it just fell apart at the last minute. Mm. So I was involved there, and one of the things that uh, my husband and I missed when we moved back was opera, because when I married him, he, I married an opera ticket. I didn't know diddly about opera, <laughs> but I went every Friday night, and after teaching five days that week, as soon as my backside hit the chair, I generally went to sleep, <laughs> and so we moved our tickets to Saturday, and I really learned to love <laughs> opera, so we we used to listen to the Metropolitan Opera every Saturday morning on KPBX. Mm-hmm. So one morning I turned it on and there was no Metropolitan Opera. And I thought, what's happened to the opera? What's, and so I called the station. I said, what happened to the Metropolitan Opera this morning? Well, we don't subscribe anymore. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't subscribe to the Metropolitan Opera? I said, who made that decision? Mm -hmm. And they said, Vern Wyndham. Vern. And, no, and Vern. I, and I, I said, who's Vern Wyndham? <laughs> and so I wrote him a letter. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> I didn't call him names, but I certainly implied his that his intelligence was not very high. <laughs> and they printed it in there because they used to send out a newsletter. Oh, funny. And I get a phone call from this woman. She said, I don't know who you are, but I agree with every word you said. Let's do something about it. Oh. And it was Anne Monzo. <laughs> who lived up on Heine Road in the Meadowbrook. And 
her husband was a singer with the Metropolitan Opera. He was a Russian, um, his specialty was he was a Russian tenor, and he played what they call compromario roles in the Metropolitan Opera. Those are roles that have very little to sing, but they have to be on stage. Mm-hmm. And right. he, his brother was head of the music department at Eastern, mm. and they had come out to visit, and they were walking through the resort after lunch, and he saw a picture of a property that was for sale, and he said, I want to buy that, and by golly, that afternoon he did. Wow. And they moved from uh, New York to here. Mm-hmm. And his sister, he was originally from C- Cedro Woolley. Cedro Woolley. Wow. Washington. I was glad to move there just because of the name. The name. <laughs> and his sister was head of the city choir for the city of, of Vancouver, Washington. Mm. I mean, they were really deep into the music of the state of Washington. And Anne... So we got together with Anne, Mark and I, and Anne, who is always just great energy, said, let's start our own opera. So we did. Wow. And we said, how are we going to do that? Well, because we'd been involved with San Francisco Opera, we knew that they had this this program called the Merola, which is named after the first director of the San Francisco Opera. And what it was, was young artists who are given what is essentially a scholarship to come to San Francisco and study opera. And they would put on operas and they would travel all over the western states to rural areas. And their mission, literally, was to bring opera to underserved rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so you could hire them for $15,000. They would bring two pianists, two different casts, all the costumes and all the sets, Wow, what a deal. What a deal, right. So we decided we were going to bring San Francisco Merrill a program here, but we needed 15 grand. So I wrote some articles for the spokesman in the Coeur d'Alene Press and the Inlander and whatever we could grab. And we had two meetings and one in the afternoon in the basement of the Spokesman Review building on Northwest Boulevard, and one just after dinner. And we made our pitch what we were going to do, and we raised over $15,000 in one wow. day. Wow. That's awesome. And Jeez. One day. And one day. Well, there were people who were hungry for opera, and then there were those who, the naysayers who said, opera and Coeur I don't think so. <laughs> and so... We did, uh, we brought, the first one was La Boheme, and it was hilarious because they had moved it to San Francisco, the set. It was supposed to be San Francisco in the 1960s. There was a palatable odor of marijuana in Schuller Auditorium. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, the, 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 girls who were supposed to be from the Cafe MoMA were all in in sequined hot pants. I mean, it was really ugly, uh. but they could all <laughs> sing. And, you know, and, and we worked very closely with all the high schools in the county. Mm-hmm. And many of those kids came in formal dress. I mean, I saw a guy literally in a top hat. And then, of course, they all, all died. They all cried when Mimi dies. Mm-hmm. And so the next year, they brought Cosi Fantute. Mm-hmm. And all of the singers in that cast eventually ended up at the Met. It was really wow. quite interesting. Wow. And then... Uh, we were in San Francisco visiting friends, and I pick up the Chronicle, and it says the Merrill program is no more. Well, it turned because this woman said 
uh, it was formed to bring opera to underserved rural areas, and those don't exist anymore. Well, that oh. was a crock. Turned oh out God. that the director of the opera had spent all the endowment, and oh, they couldn't, they couldn't afford it. Uh. So I said to Mark, well, you know, Doily Cart has a Western uh, cast now, and without going into all the details, there is an organization called West Staff, and, and it is the organization that disperses monies to the 11 Western states for performing arts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It was, it's, it's a marvelous thing they do, but without going into the detail, I knew that one of the criteria was that if you, you wanted money from them, you had to have whomever you were going to hire in three different states. So I called the people at Whitefish. They were thrilled. And I called the people at the Cutter up in Ione, and they were thrilled. So then I called Doily Cart. Yes, they'd love to come. So wow. we come back to Coeur d'Alene. We come to our board. We by then had a nonprofit board. Guess what? The Doily Cart is going to come, and they're going to do the Mikado. And these people looked at us and said, that's not opera. Oh. What? And... <laughs> So there we were with, you know, egg on our face, oh. and Anne said, and we g- gave her a bad time about this forever, well, let's do a one-act Puccini. Anybody can do that. She neglected to tell us that Johnny Skeeky, what the opera she was suggesting, was his masterpiece and the most difficult piece of music he ever wrote. Oh, great. And it had 13 parts to mm. it. And Bill Rhodes, who I started school with in seventh grade, was home. I and uh, my Tevia. Yeah. When I was a fiddler. Yes, so. had to wear all that ice because he kept getting yes. so hot. Oh, he was so hot. <laughs> he had. I loved him. He had a magnificent voice, he and we'd did. been friends since seventh grade. So I called Bill and I said, "Hey, you want to sing Johnny Skeeky?" He said, "Oh, I'd love to. I've always wanted to sing that." And of course, Max Mendez was here. Yeah. And Bert Newman was the Guccio. And uh, Ran Haight painted the backdrop, and uh, we hired, uh, what's his name from Post Falls, the tenor? Jad? Jad. Jad. We hired Jad, because we had heard him do West Side Story the year before. Yep, yep. And uh, the Ted, excuse me, the Tedmans who live in Hayden. Mm-hmm. Had a daughter named Wendy who has sadly passed away, mm. but Wendy was from Fort Worth, and she was a soprano, and she flew in, and I mean the world came together. And then Judy McGivney, who had more fabric in her basement yes. than anybody <laughs> in the universe, yeah. said, "Well, I have some fabric that looked just great for that bedroom scene." <laughs> and then the guy who was the uh, builder. At uh, NIC said, well, I can do the set. Jack Green? Green? Who walked out two weeks before the curtain. Oh, Oh, no. Jack, Jack, shame on you. (laughs) Well, I would go farther than that. (laughs) So here we are. Oh, geez. And, I mean, this happens. You've been in theater. Yeah, I've been there. You've seen these crises. So we all all lived through that. And Wendy Tedman, when she arrived... You have to imagine this woman walks on stage for the first rehearsal. She has shoulder-length platinum blonde hair. It's beautiful waves and curls. She is wearing a white mohair sweater with a deep V. She is wearing silver leather pants and matching four-inch heels. Mm. 
and she's supposed to play a 90-year-old bag. <laughs> and we're all thinking, oh, my oh, God, no, what not, do we do now? And yeah. Mark is directing, and he has no, he, can, he doesn't read music. <laughs> oh, and <laughs> so when dress rehearsal came and she came on stage, I swear I didn't know who it was. <laughs> she was so magnificent. Oh, that's good. So we took the 13 singers, and we did a concert for the second act, and everybody did something they knew how to do. Mm-hmm. And so the next year, Anne said, well, let's do a full opera. So we did Elixir of Love, mm-hmm. and we did it as if it were Coeur d'Alene 1904. Oh, fun. And uh, Virginia Tinsley uh, Johnson played the madam at the house of ill repute that was in Gibbs <laughs> and uh, uh, you know after Jack Green quit uh, Mark said who are we going to get to build the sets I mean he was just terrified that this thing was going on and we didn't have any sets mm-hmm. so he was walking downtown and he ran into a friend and the friend said you look so glum what's the problem and Mark said well I need somebody who can build a set really fast and he said, I know a guy who can build a set, and he has a whole crew here. And it turns out that there's a guy in Hayden Lake who builds sets for a Hollywood theater, Pat Taliaferro. Pat. And so Pat came down and talked to Mark, and he, he, he said, oh, we can do that. You could have lived on that set. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was a real set. Yeah. And instead of having all the townspeople running around between acts, David Groth brought in his jugglers. So it was the town kids. And, I mean, things just came. It was just wonderful. That's cool. And and I had interviewed a young man who was a protege of Placido Domingos who had gone to the University of Idaho. And you mentioned I'm a writer. I I was doing a lot of uh, freelance, and I was writing a lot of stuff for the Idaho Alumni Magazine. So I called Michael and did a, uh, his name was Michael Somese, and I did a phone interview to do the article. And uh, I told Anne about him. And this is a true story. Anne had such a perfect ear that when she would audition singers from all over the country, which she did, because we brought in people from everywhere, mm-hmm. The only thing she asked them to do was to sing A flat. Oh, boy. And if they could do A flat, just like that, oh. she knew they could sing. Ooh. I mean, uh, I have to think about it. I have to, like, I have to find middle C. Uh, and I don't know if that's it. See, I'd have to, like, find my keyboard. But she she believed if, if you were an opera singer, uh. you knew where A flat was, and by God, you could do it right now. And wow. if you couldn't. Yeah. Tough. I'd be out. Wow. So, I'm, back in the day, maybe, but not anymore. So she called Whew. Michael, and she said, sing A-flat, and he did, and she hired him oh, for our awesome. Nemorino, who is the hero of the of the deal. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I interviewed him, I said, so, Michael, how did you get to the University of Idaho? And he said, well, I wasn't doing very well in school, and I had a wonderful English teacher, and she encouraged me. She said that I could grow at Idaho. Mm-hmm. And I said, who's your English teacher? Turned out to be my best friend from graduates. When oh, I, wow. when, I was, when I was an undergraduate, uh, her name was Tony Toon, and, and she was still teaching in San Jose, and I called her, and I told her what he was doing, and she flew up. And when he came off the stage at the dress rehearsal, she was there to tell him oh. congratulations. Oh, 
It was really, it was really fun. It was fun, and it sort of grew from there. You know, we we did uh, uh, funny things happen. Todd uh, Robinson, who had been in the, the yeah, Cosi, yeah. he, he had been in the Cosi group from San Francisco, mm-hmm. wonderful baritone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was played fig- he played our Figaro, and we had a, a young woman who was a singer from Portland who Anne's husband's sister had had <laughs> been her voice teacher she came and Todd Robinson was about what six four yeah he's super and tall. this young woman was about five two <laughs> and was still nursing her baby who uh, was about six months old at the time mm-hmm. and Mark my husband had designed a circular set much like the one Baz Luhrmann used for Bohem when mm-hmm. they did it in Australia so this the the circle was broken into four so instead of a curtain between acts they would just rotate this yeah. thing mm-hmm. so there's a scene at the end of, of Figaro where Susanna who was our young soprano uh is really angry at Figaro who she's supposed to marry and he's been messing around Mm -hmm. and he comes out and she's just furious and I don't know if you've ever dealt with fight scenes but they're very highly choreographed Mm -hmm. and Todd came in about two seconds too fast and she came with an uppercut and dropped him to his knees and he was out cold (laughs) oh my god and this was in performance wow I mean, all kinds, you know, yeah. things like that happen. So yeah. other people, you know, we we retired and other people came in and it's now Inland Northwest Opera. Mm-hmm. It's a major regional opera. Mm-hmm. We just had the 20th Opera Cruise Sunday night. It was elixir two boats love, together. Right? And cold oh, yeah. And I heard it, it was, was sold elixir out. Of love, yeah, no, it, it was Elixir of Love. It was wonderful. The entire cast was from had sung at the Metropolitan Opera except for Mike Bullard who has been in every performance they have ever done Uh and he played a what's a walk-on role but he was the purser on this supposed ship and he and he was really funny and he, wow. he did a wonderful job wow awesome. cool so it was a beginning and an end that was very nice that's wow. great Hey y'all, it's Jason from Tubbs Coffee Roasters. We are North Idaho's specialty coffee roaster. We are homegrown and we are local. We love coffee and we love our community, especially Allie and Callie in ArtCast. We have a retail space in our roastery in Hayden and we can also be found on the shelves at Super One and Yolks. And if you like to buy coffee online, we do offer subscriptions. You can find us at TubbsCoffeeRoasters.com. Support arts and culture and your local roaster. That's all. So you've since you've been around for so long and seen so many changes, what do you think about the changes that we've had in this community? I think they're horrible. I grew up in a town where nobody, frankly, gave a rat's rump if you were a Democrat or a Republican. It was a community. Mm-hmm. People functioned as a community. And now we have a lot of people who have moved here who have a particular point of view about religion 
the ones I've met tend to be white supremacists. They believe that this country was founded by white Christian males, which is not true. They certainly were Caucasian, but they were not all Christians. In fact, there were several atheists and a lot of other varieties. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always been a white supremacist underbelly in the West, mm-hmm. uh, going back to the early settlers uh, who called themselves Christians and then set out to slaughter all the indigenous people because right. they wanted their land. So there's always been that sense. But these people, I mean, I, I, I have a new neighbor who told me she moved here because, and she came from a very nice town that I've been in, in California. And I said, why did you leave? That's a lovely town. And she said, the brown people were moving in. Oh, oh geez. Oh, and those people are all over here. And, and they claim to be Christian. They're not behaving like Christians. Right. It's not a community. It's the antithesis of community. When you have one group who says they're right, they have the only answer. And if you don't believe them, they're going to do something bad to you. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's who these people are. Mm -hmm. And that's what I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So, Marlo, what's next for you? Well, after the opera, I got involved with the symphony. I was executive director for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always been writing. I teach at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. And uh, my life has really been checkered. You know, I've been on hydroplane crews. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the hydroplane races and just gave my my j- jacket with my crew stuff on it to the museum. Oh, uh, nice. And then I, at one point, uh, I taught at NIC mm-hmm. and it was very difficult living in Coeur d'Alene in the 60s and being 23 and unmarried. And mm-hmm. uh, I dropped into the, actually Virginia Tinsley Jenny Johnson was with me, who dropped into the athletic round table one night for a drink after we went to the movie at the Wilma. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a drink and then went home. And by the time I got home, my mother knew where we sat, who I talked to, what I ordered, <laughs> when we left. And I thought, okay, that's it. And I had heard from two women I had met when I was in graduate school at Southern Illinois University. And they had moved to Fort Lauderdale and said, you want to share an apartment? Yes. So I put my car in that my father paid for in the garage. <laughs> he paid for it three time, three different times that I owned it. And uh, I flew to Fort Lauderdale and uh, had a fascinating life in Fort Lauderdale. I, I had never been east of Glacier Park, for God's sake. <laughs> so I lived in Fort Lauderdale. And at one t- point, I, you know, I grew up here and I, my parents owned Eddyville. So I grew up in a restaurant and on the Your boats. Your parents owned Eddyville? Yeah. Oh my God. I remember Eddyville. Do you know why it's called Eddyville? Uh-uh. Because the state of Idaho requires that to have a liquor license, you have a municipality. Uh-huh. And there were three partners, and one of them was Earl Eddy, who was a used car salesman from Spokane. And he said, <laughs> if I'm going to have to stay over here for the summer, you're going to name it after me. <laughs> so Eddyville is a- actually a municipality. Oh, wow. So anyway, I was managing this restaurant, and it was 1968, and Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And this was right after Bobby Kennedy. And I was managing the restaurant one day at lunch and 
one of our regular guys who I, I knew and I knew his wife and family was sitting at the bar and, and he was with this guy who was a real lout, you know, the kind who drink bull shots for lunch. Mm, right. And this guy looked at me and he said, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? And I thought, yuck. And I said, <laughs> uh, actually, I wish I were back in the classroom. I'm actually an English teacher. And my friend Dave said, well, where do you want to teach? And I said, I'd like to teach in the San Francisco area. And he said, well, I'm going to California tomorrow. And I could see the Jodes crossing at Barstow. And I said, you know, Dave, I think I'd like to fly. And he said, oh, I have a plane. And I could see Wrongway, Corrigan, somewhere over Kansas. And I said, you know, Dave, I think I'll just take a jet. He said, I have a jet. <laughs> and so I said, hold that. Th I said, what kind of a jet? And he said, a Learjet. And I said, hold that thought. So I went to the office and called my roommate, who was the executive secretary to Learjet, South Florida. Uh -huh. And I said, does so-and-so have a flight plan for tomorrow? And she said, yeah. He's going into Van Nuys. He leaves here at 7.30. So I went back. I said, I'll go. Wow. So I had been at a party the night before, and this woman said she wanted to buy my car. So I said, I called her, and I said, if you bring the money, the cash, right now, I'll leave the key under the mat. You can have the car. But I have to go pay bills, because I didn't have enough money to pay my Florida Power and Light and my Jordan uh -huh. Marsh and all that. To make a long story short, the first funny coincidence was that the co-pilot had been Yvonne Dodge's co-pilot who was here during the hydroplane races when I was working as a bodyguard for her daughter. Oh, wow. So he came out and said, Marlo, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> so I got to sit in the co-pilot seat. Did you know the Learjet windshields are optically ground so there's no distortion it was really fun hmm. so anyway we get there and i have just enough money left to stay overnight in a hotel take a cab to the airport and fly up to stay with my grandmother in, in los altos south of san francisco so they they take me into this hotel where some of them are staying and i said to the guy I said, I have $56 in cash, and I still have to buy a plane ticket. And that's when you could get a plane ticket from L.A. to San Francisco for 26 bucks. Wow. You know, on the yellow plane with a smile. <laughs> but I still have to get to the airport, and I have to pay for a hotel room. And he said, I have a room over the kitchen for $17. It's a single. Take it. So I thank everybody for the plane ride, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they were playing gin for a hundred dollars a point i was using matchsticks it was time for me to leave so i thanked them all i went up to my room took a shower went to bed repacked i was ready to go in the morning the phone rings and it's jack one of the guys and he said there's someone here who wants to talk to you and i thought oh geez so i get on the phone and the next voice i hear is ed mcmahon no and he way. said are you really an english teacher and i said yes sir i am and to make that story really short, his secretary had the flu and did I want her job? And so I said, how much are you paying? <laughs> he said, $75 a day plus expenses and you get your own driver. So I worked on The Tonight Show for two weeks. Wow. And uh, was his assistant and got to do a lot of interesting things that are make up all kinds of other stories. And, <laughs> we need a two-parter. Uh, yeah, we yeah. do. <laughs> but the, my favorite memory is 
you know, I grew up in a bar and I know how to handle myself. And so nobody ever came close to me. Nobody ever put me in an awkward situation. They all knew I worked for Ed McMahon and that was it. Uh-huh. So I'm walking down the hall and I feel this hand on my left shoulder. And I'm ready to come back with my elbow. Right. And I turn around and it's Jimmy Stewart. Oh, my God. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Stewart, what can I do for you? And he said, are you really an English teacher? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, I write poetry. And he he's, you know, he is a not a bad poet. He has published books. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, sir, I know you're a poet. And he said, well, I wrote this last night, but I'm afraid to read it on the air. I'm afraid Johnny will laugh. He said, would you read it for me? So I look, I burst into tears reading it. It was a pay on to his dog who had died the day before, Aww. Golden Retriever. And I said, Mr. Stewart, this is a lovely piece of writing. You should read it. So he goes on the show. He reads it. Johnny cries. Doc cries. Ed cries. And if you go on YouTube under Jimmy Stewart and Johnny Carson, you can watch it. Oh, you know, wow. I, you can watch him read it. That's okay. So I flew from there to Northern California. And this is another funny coincidence. I wanted to get a job teaching. So I go to the San Mateo Union High School District. And the woman who was supposed to interview me was sick that day. So her assistant interviewed me. Her name was June McBreen. And she looked at the thing and she said, Finney, University of Idaho, are you from Coeur d'Alene? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, are you related to John Finney? And I said, he's my father. She said, he was my date for the Whirly Junior Prom in 1932. (laughs) That's a true story. And while I was sitting there, somebody came in with a requisition for a teacher at Burlingame High School who had an English and and history major, and that would be me. So I went for the interview. They hired me, and my boss, this is not the end of that story, but it's close. My boss uh, invited me to his house for dinner. Ostensibly, a bunch of us were going to go to the school play. And on the way there, this guy, a gorgeous man in a white XKE convertible, pulled up behind me in my gorgeous 63 bug and started going, <laughs> nun, 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 nun. well, I didn't know where I was going. I'd never been to their house before. They had one of those, you know, eight-digit addresses. Mm-hmm. So I'm putting around, and this guy keeps going, nun, 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 nun. and finally... I did something I've never done before and never done since. I pulled over so he could pass me, and as he went by, I rolled down my window. And and he zoomed off, and I finally found their house, and I pulled in, and there was that That car. Oh, boy. And I put my head on the wheel, and I said, now what? So I pulled up next to the Jag, and before I could turn off the ignition, this man opened the door and said, I believe we've already met. <laughs> and we were engaged five weeks later, and we've been married 54 oh years. Oh, my God. Best I story love that ever. Story. I love so, <laughs> in the meantime, I started writing. Uh, I'd been writing all my life, odds and ends of things, and I, I went to see... Oh, I can't believe I can't remember. It's Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. In uh, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Went to see it and came out and I said, turned, I don't know why I did this. I turned to Mark and I said, you know, I could have written that. And I saw an ad at College of San Mateo. They were doing a screenwriting class, so I took it. In the meantime, I had a newspaper column. And uh, we had been, my family and I, up to Jack London State Park for a picnic. And... 
I was standing there and there was this absolutely gorgeous uh, ranger standing there, you know, with a hat and the badge and the whole thing. And, mm-hmm. and I had my, my press card with me. So I walked up, introduced myself and said uh, that I, I said, you know, this looks interesting. I could do a column about this. And he said, well, you have to do the column about Charmian London. And who I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I taught Jack London, you know, Call of the Wild and the whole thing, but mm-hmm. I'd never heard of her. So he said, follow me. So he took me around behind some trees and pushed a, a stone in the foundation and a secret door opened. And he took me up to her private apartment that she had built this after he died as a memorial to him. Mm-hmm. And I was so taken by what he showed me about her. I just fell in love with her instantly and did two columns uh, about her, uh, especially about her clothes. And oddly enough, I got a phone call from a woman who told me that her mother, when she was a little girl, had been her dressmaker. And all of her clothes that she wore to school were leftover fabrics from Charmian's closet. So I wrote a screenplay. And my my instructor said, you know, you should write this as a novel first and then sell it as a novel. Mm-hmm. So that was in, in 1992. It is now, what, 30 years later, and it's now a novel. I have a big-time agent, and it's out for submission. Oh, Yay! that's so cool. And what's it Can't called? Wait. It's called The Other Mrs. London. It's yeah. about a... 29-year-old woman in San Francisco in 1900, that would be Charmian, uh, who meets this young writer fresh from the Klondike and ready for fame. And there's instant uh, chemistry Mm -hmm. and lust. And uh, he breaks the date to marry somebody else. Oh. And she decides she's going to be in his life no matter the consequences. Wow. That sounds great. How do you get a hold of that book? Well, first, some wonderful publisher has to decide to buy it, mm-hmm. has to get through the editor. Oh, edit- gotcha. It's been edited, but the editorial the process is that publishers have purchasing editors. They mm-hmm. have to decide to buy it. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it just gets to the point where you say, forget this, I'm going to do it myself. Right. But uh, so it's out for submission. It just went out for submission. Mm-hmm. And I have another book called Fish Belly White, which is about the white supremacist movement in North Idaho. Mm. Uh-huh. And uh, it's been edited. And another, I mean, my life is like this. This woman I, I chose because she is really tough and she specializes in mysteries. And uh, I sent my query in my first two chapters to see if she would do it. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm going to do this. She said, I grew up in Wallace. There you go. Wow. A little small so, world. Wow. It's a small. It is a small it world. It is a small It's all world. connected somehow. Yep. It's crazy. Well, Marlo, everything I read about you always ends with, she's a force to be reckoned with. And yes. I totally get it. So you have great stories. And we We're going to have to have a part two with you. Yes. There's more there's that we more need story. to know. Yes, more, I absolutely Yeah, yeah for sure. So. Yeah. This is just the beginning with Marlo. But just the beginning. I was a roadie for Jimmy Rogers. What? <laughs> See, save it, save it, save it. Yeah, I was in the riot, right? And that's it wasn't a riot, it was a bunch of us with beer in our hands having a good time. <laughs> See? See, these are stories we yeah. need to talk yeah. about. 
Well, well, thanks for being here, yes. Marla. Well, we'll, thank you for we'll inviting schedule me. The, we'll My schedule part so two. Tar- so tired of hearing these stories. It's a real pleasure to have somebody respond. Oh, Yay. well, we love hearing it. So. <laughs> we do. Thank you so much thanks for, for being, being here. here. I'm Allie. And I'm Callie. And whatever you do today, make sure it's creative. The Allie and Callie Artcast is a program of the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Culture Alliance and is sponsored by NIA, North Idaho Alliance, a woman-based leadership organization designed to inspire, uplift, and impact your community and lives. And Tubbs Coffee Roasters, globally sourced, locally roasted coffee.